All right, uh, if you'll turn in your text to the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians chapter 1 and verses 13 and 14 tonight. Uh, last week we looked at verses 11 and 12 and the source that Paul received his gospel from was certainly not man. He was not taught it by man. He did not receive it by man. Tonight, uh, this next section, verses 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul is remembering the past, specifically his past. So remembering the past, Galatians 1, 13 and 14. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Again, I remind you, Paul did not receive his gospel from any man. He wasn't taught it by man. But it was a supernatural work of God to convert his previous name, Saul, and to the man we know as the Apostle Paul. Now, after establishing the source of where he received the gospel from, he reminds them of the truth of his pre-converted life. And I think we can gain, we'll gain some stuff from this, but it's not wrong or bad to remember where you came from and how you came to the place that you are. Just if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you could hear Paul's testimony, you could hear others' testimony and say, wow, if God can save them, then possibly God would save me. <clears throat> now, anyone who would examine Paul's past life will find a man who was extremely zealous in his religion. And if anyone was to be converted by zealous religious works, surely it would have been Paul. I don't know anybody else in these days that was as zealous as he, he was, working tirelessly, if you will, for a false religion. So I don't think you could outdo his workload. You know, if, if, uh, if Paul couldn't use his own efforts to get saved, I doubt anybody else can. However, all his religious zeal only took him further from the truth. And without God intervening in his life, he would have never been saved, which is the point here about Galatia. He's trying to remind them salvation is by grace alone. Don't return to some works-based system to try to gain God's favor. Remember where you started. God gave you something you didn't deserve. Be thankful. Circumcision profited Paul nothing, and he knew this very well. Paul's testimony, rightly heard, is simply a testimony of God's grace and mercy without one iota of help from him. All right, so just a two-point message tonight. There's a couple of things, sub-points below that, but just two things. The first one is former Judaism, and that's what he talks about in verse 13. You've heard of my former life in Judaism what do we know or what have they heard about him before his conversion? 
We know this specifically from verse 13. He persecuted, see it there in your text, kind of in the middle of the verse, I persecuted the church of God. There's only one entity represented uh, in Paul's testimony here. It's very, very short, but the clarity is there was this one thing, the church of God, that's what I was totally against. This guy's radically opposed to church rightly understood. He's against that. They've received news about Paul's persecution. Now, he's giving this testimony to magnify the grace of God. So you're hearing about a man who spent his life's effort to persecute God's church, but the very God he's persecuting saves him. That's grace. Why would God save someone who hated him so much and who hated his church? Now, on the other side of this, the troublemakers that came to Galatia, they'll use Paul's past life to magnify his faults and discredit him. Why trust a guy who treated the church like that? Why listen to a guy who acted like this? Don't you know how he was? That's what the critics would do to discredit him. And that is simply one point of application. Take note of what you hear about men and examine it truthfully. Don't examine it through the world of gossip. Ask Paul himself what happened. Listen to an account firsthand, not just what others may see, hear, or say, and take their word for it. Examine the person himself. Now, I want to note the phrase, the church of God. In, in this phrase, in verse 13, it's being universal. The, the church in the world, the church of God. Whereas in verse 2 and in verse 22, he says the church in Galatia. So just a distinction, you have a local church in Galatia, but the church of God encompasses the world. So uh, we have, by the word Baptist church, here in uh, Briar, Texas, if you will, and this is a church, God's church, and we can say that in specific reference to here. But this is not all the church that there is. The church is in Peru, it's in South America, it's over in Russia, it's up in Canada. The church of God is global, but there are individual groupings called a local church. And so Paul does speak to Galatia, but he says when he persecuted, he was persecuting the entire church wherever he found it. Now, I also remind you that when you think about the church being global, we need to hear this and understand It embraces Gentiles and Jews of all times and all places. There's not one particular race that makes up the church. It's not a Jewish church or a Gentile church or this color church or that color church. There's just one church made up of all these different ethnicities and all these different nations. Just look here in Galatians. I won't go to any other book. We could do it with other books, but... Listen in Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Abraham's a Jew, 
He preached the gospel to Abraham, but not only to Abraham, but those who would believe the same gospel would be in this same lineage. He said to him, the end of verse 8, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, whether Gentile or Jew. The issue is faith. And then in Galatians, same chapter, chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. And then chapter 3, verse 29. The last verse of the chapter And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, I don't have time to pursue all this racial instability in our country and all these goofy things of all these movements, whether it's Black Lives Matter or critical race theory or equality, whatever the movements are. Look, I don't need another book and I don't need some philosophy from some religious person. Just read the Bible. It's really clear. This is the way we deal with it. If we want to be one in unity, you must have faith in Christ. Whatever color you are, however much money you have or however much money you don't have, whatever your level of education is, if you want to be in the family of God, you'll have to turn from your sin and believe Christ. If you do that, then you're a part of the family of God. God's your Father, and all the people over the whole globe who have believed in Christ are your brothers and sisters. Whatever race or ethnicity that you may be, this is the only way unity is found is in the gospel. God is not a respecter of persons. He didn't play favorites like, oh, I'll save white people and I won't save Spanish people. I'll save black people and I won't save uh, Chinese people. No, God doesn't respect any race. Unless you repent and believe the gospel, you're going to go to hell. But if you repent and believe the gospel, you're cleansed and purified. All your sins are washed away and you're one in Christ and you become an heir to the throne of God. What a, what a blessing. The gospel simply solves these issues the world has complicated. Now, the Apostle Paul, in seeking to destroy the church, he fully believed that what he was doing was right. He, he didn't think he was out. He, he's like, I'm doing the right thing. You say, how does that work? I'll give you an example. I may have used this years ago. But I was down in Peru one time uh, with Brother Paul Washer, and we were uh, there in Lima, and we went over to where they did the Inquisition. And it's a place where the Catholic Church was putting to death those who held to evangelical faith. So like when you go into this place where they did the Inquisition, they brought the people in before a board, they questioned, had questions and answers, and if they answered in opposition to what the church thought was right, they were executed, martyred for their faith. And they had pictures of John Calvin, they had pictures of Martin Luther, and underneath their pictures they had rewritten what these guys stood for and made them to look worse than what they were. Thousands upon thousands were tortured in the Inquisition there in Lima, Peru, and these are people being tortured who believe what you believe. 
In that era of time of the Inquisition, the Catholic Church thought that they were doing right in the eyes of God by getting rid of the heretics. And they're like, we're going to get all the heretics off the globe where God's church will shine. And they were completely wrong. I saw the ways that they tortured people in that place. They had these mock dummies set up that were like mannequins or whatever. And all the positions of torture and the racks where they tied them and tied their legs, tied their hands, and they stretched their bodies out and they beat them with whips. Or they tied their hands behind their back and hung them up like this and they would hang for hours like that. And they just tortured them and they were dead. These are people who believed a right gospel. But the Catholic Church thought that they were serving God. Saul thought he was serving God in persecuting the church of God. It, it's the position of I'm totally believing I'm doing right. Paul's doing this on purpose. Why? Because look, how are you going to change this man's position? He's fully convinced he's right. How are you going to change him? It's going to take the grace of God. He goes on to say in verse 13, you look there again, and he says, For you have heard of my former life. Note the words former life. It's uh, the Greek word for conduct. Anastrophe is the word for conduct. Uh, Conduct expressed according to certain principles. Your way of life, your behavior. I'll give you just a couple of references. Paul uses this in Ephesians. In Ephesians 4.22, he says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, your former conduct. Or in 1 Timothy 4.12, he tells Timothy, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set believers an example in speech, in conduct. And so... Paul is saying, you know what my way of life was. You know what my conduct was in Judaism. How he persecuted. Look again there in verse 13. After he says his conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted. Now, I do want to bring out the tense of this verb because I think it's important for you to catch this. And the English doesn't pick it up. But it's, what we say in, the, in, in Greek grammar is the imperfect tense. It's the partial accomplishment, but that the effort ultimately fell short. He was in the process of doing something, persecuting, but he didn't fulfill it to the nth degree. I want you to hear that because he uses this tense throughout his testimony. I was persecuting, I was destroying, I I was doing these things, my whole heart was in it, but here's the deal, he never completed. That's the great testimony. Why did he not complete it? Because God's grace showed up and aborted the process. And so he never destroyed the church. He wasn't able to fulfill the mission. So he was persecuting, harassing especially those who had a certain belief system. And I find it interesting here, he doesn't go into detail. Guys, on the back row, you're going to have to separate or do something different, but you are confusing me. So think about this. Paul doesn't go into detail as to all the things. In other words, he doesn't tell you how bad he was. We can look at this and you can kind of overlook it, right? 
Do you understand what he means when he was zealous to persecute the church? Do you know what he did to women and children? Do you know what he did to me? I mean, his testimony is gruesome. He so believed what he was doing, he, he was willing to do this persecution against women. Think about it. Look, let's, just a, a very quick perusal of Acts will make this clear. Acts 8.3, Paul was ravaging the church. He goes into house and into house, and he dragged off men. He dragged off women, and he threw them in prison. Imagine that today. A guy comes in your house and drags your wife out because she believes the gospel and throws her in prison, and he has the authority from the state to do so. That's what Paul's doing, and everybody's heard this. Acts 9.1, Paul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest to get some more orders to do this more. I want to kill these people. That's how zealous he was. Acts 9.13, after his testimony, he's supposed to go and see a man by the name of Ananias. Ananias says, Lord, I heard about this dude. I have heard a lot of things. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And he has authority from the chief priests to bind anybody that calls on your name. Ananias was scared of him. Acts 22, 4 and 5. Paul says, quote, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. As the high priest and the whole council of elders, they can bear witnesses. This is what I did. From them, I received letters to the brothers. I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem in order that they would be punished. And then in Acts 26, verse 10, Paul says again, And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, so there's a saint executed, Paul says, I cast my vote against them. Yeah, kill them. You you remember the scene where Jesus is going to the cross and they say, crucify, crucify. Here's Paul, pre-conversion, seeing a person like Stephen being martyred, and he's going, kill him, kill him. He's giving his vote and casting it. He says, I punish them often in all the synagogues. I tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I mean, he'd get in people's face, deny Christ, deny Christ, deny Christ, blaspheme his name. This is what they've heard about Paul, and Paul's saying, it's all true. I did every bit of that. Every bit of that is right about me, but God's grace. This is the reason he's telling them this. Because in the midst of such fury and hatred of God, God intervened, and when God's grace came, everything changed. He goes on after he says, having persecuted... He says, in excess, look at verse 13 again, I persecuted the church of God. The ESV says, violently, violently. The Greek word meaning in excess, going beyond extraordinary degree, going beyond a point on a scale, going to a point of excess. It wasn't just persecution. It was beyond persecution. It was downright stinking mean. That's what he's saying. 
The ESV says he did it violently. NASB, KJV says he did it beyond measure. Another translation I use says savagely. Uh, A literal translation says exceedingly. This guy was all in in stamping out the church. And then you go on in verse 13. Not only have you heard of his former life, not only do you know that he started this persecution, not only do you know he did it violently, but it goes on to say his mission was to destroy it. Now, destroy, it's the same verb tense. I want to bring that out again. He started the process of destroying the church. He just couldn't pull it off. And you think about it. If you love Jesus, you'll love this. But here we are 2,000 plus years after the resurrection, and no one has destroyed the church yet. They are attacking the pastors in Canada. There's people being martyred. There's people being persecuted all over the world. The world hates the church, but yet she still stands. They had started the process of destroying it. They just can't pull it off. God's not going to allow them to pull it off. He says he's trying to destroy it. (laughs) This Greek word is interesting, to attack and cause complete destruction. Here's an Old Testament word. Pillage it, pillage, make havoc of, destroy, or you could even use the word annihilation. Wipe it off the map that you never even know it was there. That's what Paul's attempting to do. So you know how you have synonyms. You have two different words that kind of mean the same thing. The word persecute and the word destroy are synonyms in the Greek language. But with this little caveat, persecute is one thing the synonym to destroy is an intensification of the first word so first word he's persecuting now I'm going to use the synonym but by the way this synonym has a stronger flavor to it Paul's saying with my whole heart I wanted to wipe the church off the globe that's his position remember Acts 9 21 he uses this word there And I will read it into the ESV. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man? Is not this the man who was destroying in Jerusalem those who called upon his name? Isn't this the guy who put his hand to the plow to get rid of the entire church? Is it this guy is coming here? They had heard of his heart and his motive. The object of Saul, who later becomes Paul, the object of his efforts to destroy was singular, the church, period. He put all his effort into this one task. I'm going to get rid of the church. They won't bother anybody ever again. Now, If anyone has ever thought that what they were doing was right, it was Saul pre-conversion. He gave 100% to what he thought was right, but it didn't produce salvation in him. These troublemakers of Galatia, who thought they were right, they cannot exceed him in zeal, and neither can any man today. Salvation will not be gained by your effort. No matter how well you believe it. 
no matter what your life is up to this point, it will take the same grace of God to save you as it did to save Saul. It takes the same power. So I'll have a very exciting testimony. You do if you understand the gospel. Because it will take God's grace to save you. Point number two. Forward Judaism. Verse 14. I was advancing. Verse 14. I was advancing in Judaism. Beyond many of my own age. Beyond my peers. Among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So beyond my peers, <laughs> it's an interesting word. Again, the imperfect tense is used again. I'll say the same thing again. He was advancing in Judaism. He's moving his way to the top. He just never completed the process. It's aborted on the way. As he's succeeding in this false religion, he doesn't succeed in it because of the grace of God. But the word is very interesting. To move forward to an improved state, to progress, to advance. If you, and it says old school, but if you had uh, an iron worker and you're going to make horseshoes, you're going to work with metal, you're going to do something with iron, you heat it up in a forge and you put it on this solid steel and you take this hammer and you beat it out to lengthen it. Right? If you don't understand this, call Derek Melton. He makes knives. He understands this. You beat the metal out to lengthen it and shape it. That's this word. He's pressing it out and lengthening it. But even more so than that, to, to cut in front of. So imagine a machete. They're about this long or so, got a handle grip. And you go into the jungle and you're hacking your way through. You're hacking out this trail. That's this word. You're hacking forward in advancement, cutting a trail and moving forward. And Paul's saying, I've hacked my way ahead of all of my peers. His advancement in Judaism was to a degree beyond that of all scales. He excelled. He surpassed. He went over, above, and beyond everyone else. He's number one in his mission here. No one can keep up with him. He's hacking his way to the front of the line. That was his devotion to his father's, in the the verse, his father's traditions. He doesn't say he was doing that in agreement with the Word of God, the Old Testament, the Law of Moses. But this oral law that had developed from the fathers and had been passed down, he's grabbed a hold of this oral law without examining the written law. And so it's like today, you got people that believe all this stuff they heard, and they're devoted to it because they heard it. You might want to examine the original before you give your life to what you heard. So Paul had given himself to what he had heard. In Acts, once again, Acts 26, verse 4 and 5, he says, My manner of life from when I was a teenager, from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem. It's known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived... As a Pharisee, everybody knows that I exceeded in my father's traditions, if you will. So Paul is reflecting on his pre-conversion state 
and is as a dedicated enthusiast. Now, I refer to another passage that Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 through 6. And this one really brings the Galatian issue uh, to bear before us. The issue is about circumcision. We've, we know that as we've been going through this book and trying to get these people who've been saved by grace to now get circumcised to fulfill a law where God will accept them. Paul said in Philippians 3, 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I have more. Well, why, why do you have more, Paul? I was circumcised on the eighth day. I fulfilled the law perfectly. I was circumcised on day eight of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he says, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, I'm a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, righteousness under the law, he said, I'm blameless. I have kept every law perfectly. I've given my whole life to this work, being circumcised on the eighth day. It did not profit me conversion. So you in Galatia that were saved by grace, why would you go back and live by works to gain God's acceptance? When you know God gave you acceptance by grace. Why don't you just be thankful for the goodness of God instead of moving over to a works-based system to gain God's approval? By grace, you already have it. Could, Could anybody in this room be set free tonight? I wonder, is there anybody in this room who thinks that they have to perform to gain God's acceptance. you got to do something for God to love you more. you got to do something for God to be more proud of you. You've got to perform a certain way for God to look at you a certain way. That's bad theology. God loves you because he chose to love you. And not because you did anything. He just reached down from heaven, took your wicked, depraved heart, and called you to himself, and cleansed you of all your sin, and said, you're mine. And there's nothing you can do to make him love you more. Nothing. And Paul Paul does not want the Galatians to lose that. Because once you lose that, all joy is gone. And then you get in this works-based thing of the fear of men trying to do things where people will think you're something when everybody knows you're really not. Paul, uh, according to William Hendrickson, very short quote, (laughs) Paul was cutting his way through a forest, destroying every obstacle in order to advance in his false religion. He was boldly zealous. Verse 14, he was advancing beyond many of his own people. And then it says, so extremely zealous was I. So extremely zealous. To a much greater degree. Far more, far greater. He was extreme in his zeal. Or you could take the word zeal, and that's where you get the word zealot. When it came to being a zealot, he was over and above. Earnestly committed to a side, an enthusiast, a loyalist. He was committed over the top to human traditions he had learned. What traditions? Well, the text says the traditions 
of his fathers. The traditions of those who took God's holy law, the first five books of the Old Testament, they took the God's holy law and they buried it under a load of human traditions. It's called halakha, it's a Jewish word, which is a body of Jewish oral law which supplemented the written law. It's like, here's all this written law, but this is what we've heard said all over the years, and so we hold to this, and they've done forgotten what the written law was. If you want that in modern-day terminology, get in a Baptist church, and they start doing something weird, and you say, why in the world are they doing that? That's not even in the Bible. We've always done it this way. Well, why do you do it that way? Because that's the way we do it. But, but why? I mean, why did you start that? But that's the way we do it. And it's like, you're holding firmly. I've seen churches divided over holding to a tradition that had no biblical foundation whatsoever. People fighting over it like, we have to keep this. It's like, okay, let me make up an example. We have to have an American flag and a Christian flag. Why? Because. It's because. You know, we got to have them. Well, you, well, you, why do you take them out? Well, I, I mean, do you have any reference that we're supposed to have the flag of the United States in the church? No, but we should be proud of our country. Fine, but why do you have to have the flag? I, my point just being that people will fight about stuff like this that doesn't even have biblical content. And so here's what's happened with this holocaust. They've taken these oral traditions, and Paul's willing to persecute the church of God zealously, and he doesn't even have any information to stand on that his position is right. It's dangerous. Paul's purpose in writing this to the Galatians, well, it seems obvious. I'll give you a quote by Hendrickson and one by John Stott. The first one by Hendrickson, quote, He is saying that no human persuasion would ever have been able to impart the gospel to such a confirmed and ferocious persecutor. His purpose is to show that his gospel is from God and not from man. John Stott, quote, No conditional reflex or other psychological device could convert a man in this state. Only God could reach him. And he did. It changed everything. Now, just to close in the point of application, some people are the opposite of Paul. I recognize that in our country that can't seem to get anybody to work for a living anymore. And so some people are the opposite of Paul. There's some people that have no zeal, no passion, no conviction, and nothing seems to move them. There are people like that, right? The grace of God would have to save them because they're never going to make any effort. Unless God intervenes, they're just going to stay lazy until they die off and go to hell, right? So if God doesn't intervene and wake them up, they're just going to sleep their way home to hell. Some people are worldly and spend much energy in serving the world and serving their own flesh. They don't have time for religion, and they certainly don't have time to read the Bible, Unless the grace of God shows up and opens the scriptures to them, there's nothing they're going to put forth to get saved. They have no interest because all their efforts are placed in the world. Thirdly, some people are religiously worldly. 
they try to mesh their own efforts together with spiritual things. It's like, I want to balance church and the world where I can have the best of both worlds. I'm going to mesh these together. That's exactly what these troublemakers were doing in Galatia. They're going to balance the works with grace and bring them together and harmonize your effort with God's free gift. It doesn't work. Unless God's grace saves you, you can't be saved. You cannot walk into the portals of heaven and say, Lord Jesus, thank you for doing 90%, and I'm real glad I did my 10%. You cannot sing on Christian radio. I let God take control of my life. Like, he needed your permission. You, you, you can't work this way. It's all God or it's nothing. And when you realize that, then you can live in this place of gratefulness and thanksgiving for what God did for you when you did not deserve it. And so I, lastly, I say this. Now, we said all this about Saul becoming Paul. Now, for you and for myself, remember your life before Christ. So remember, there was a time, if you're Christian, there was a time when you were not Christian. And ask yourself, is your salvation based upon God's grace through faith? Or are you trying to take credit for something you did in the process? Hey, true salvation is the recognition that God gave you something you didn't deserve. And you're like, for the rest of your life, there's just something in your heart. There's this ever-growing gratitude that God would be kind to you. And then, I don't, you don't spend the rest of your life trying to gain his favor. You spend the rest of your life grateful that God loves you. And I close with Romans 6, just the reading of the text, and then we'll pray. Romans 6, verse 15. And I think you can hear this same thing being said by Paul in another format, where Paul says in Romans 6, 15, he says, The amount of effort and dedication that was given to the ways of the world. Uh, let me turn there. Romans 6, 15. Romans 6, 15. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented yourselves as members, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So this, before you were saved, like Paul, and all the efforts you gave back here before to lawlessness, he says, now because of grace, you present your members as slaves to righteousness, and this leads to our sanctification. Now we belong 
to another. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. You sinned as much as you wanted. Verse 21, what was the fruit you were getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin, you've become slaves of God, and the fruit you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father in heaven, thank you for grace. We weren't looking We weren't earning, we weren't climbing, we weren't paying our way. Lord, we started off in sin, living for ourselves and gratifying our own flesh. Thank you that the gospel was preached to us. Thank you that we read the gospel and the Bible. Thank you for a gospel tract that we read one day that opened our eyes. Thank you for grace, giving us what we did not deserve Thank you for a generous salvation. And Lord, now that you have given us this gift we didn't deserve, may we spend the rest of our days serving you out of love and gratitude for how good you have been, for how good you are, and for how good you will always be. Lord, may our hearts be filled with joy and thankfulness at the privilege of being a part of your family. Help us not to spend our lives trying to earn your love or to earn your acceptance. Help us to spend our lives grateful that you have loved us so well. And we pray these things by your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.